Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory, founder of TeamsRock.com. Join us as Greg interviews thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from professional sports to manufacturing to business and industry. Now, let's join Greg for another powerful episode of the Teamwork Advantage. everybody welcome back to the teamwork advantage podcast i am greg gregory and we're fortunate enough today to have a extraordinary woman with us joining us and talking about teamwork leadership and culture from different perspectives so uh, i want to welcome dr shirley davis and dr davis is an accomplished and corporate executive global workforce and talent management expert a certified leadership coach and a master of reinvention. And I think we all know what that's involving with everybody today, regardless of your position. She's been featured on the NBC Today Show, The Wall Street Journal, Black Enterprise Magazine, Inclusion Magazine, among others. She's also the author of the best-selling book, Reinvent Yourself, Strategies for Achieving Success in Every Area of Your Life. Um, Rachel Moore, president and CEO of the Music Center of Los Angeles, said this about Dr. Davis said, working with Dr. Shirley Davis during her powerful yet practical workshops put our staff on the journey towards greater cultural competency. It's high marks. Welcome, Dr. Davis. Hi, Greg. What a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Thank you for having me. We're excited to have you join us here today on the uh, podcast. And we're going to talk about, and we've been talking with other people over the last few months about different ways of teamwork and leadership and culture. And you and I have known each other for a number of years. Uh And um, I thought it'd be great to get a HR perspective on some things. Okay. So um, (laughs) I know you're in tune with a lot of the human resources. You, I didn't read your uh, designations off on the uh, human resources side, but tell us a little bit about your background in human resources. Well, I've been in human resources over 25 years, going closer to 30 but I have um, worked in every area of human resources. So recruiting, I've worked in training and development, leadership development, organizational development, performance management, comp and benefits, employee relations, labor relations. And then I've been a chief diversity and inclusion officer for four major organizations. So I've had my foot in areas of HR throughout my career. And I've had the opportunity to really lead a lot of those functions, put strategies in place with those functions. And that's what I'm still doing today with companies, but just in a much larger, broader, more global, strategic way. Right. And over 30 years, I mean, we take any time frame, we can take anything in there and say, obviously, there's been a lot of changes. But let's go back to the about 20 years mm-hmm. and HR. And then for the 10-year span in there, how much did it change then? compared to how things are changing incredibly uh, paced today? So what happened within 20 years has been the internet, right? So the World Wide Web was mm-hmm. around, but when I started my career, it wasn't. So HR has had to go from being much more of a personnel department and a administrative department and a party planner and the hall monitors to really being more of a partner and a, you know, having a, a real input into the strategy of the organization because companies have started to realize over the last 20 years that it really is your talent that helps you to compete. Your talent is what differentiates you from your competition and your talent is what allows you to really build a more sustainable and a more innovative 
uh, process and model. So HR is a real important and key critical piece of that. So they've also had to change a lot too, not only because of technology and because there's a, much, a lot more competition for top talent, but top talent looks different today too much more multicultural, multi-generational. Um, we've got five generations in the workplace all together. We've got people coming from various cultures and various countries working in the U.S., but they're also uh, expatriating people out, but then they're repatriating them back into the U.S. So there's a shift there for HR to, to be more strategic. And then the other shift that I've seen is that HR started out very much um, sort of isolated to just one area and not always aligned with and connected to the business. And what I saw and was a part of is that they shifted to an HR business partner model. We call them HRBPs. And that was get out in the business, understand and know how the business runs, how it operates. Don't be in this, you know, separate and apart over your ivory tower, disconnected from how the business works, serves its clients, how does it meet the needs and meet the goals and makes the widgets that we have to make so that HR is able to make more strategic propositions and offers versus mandato mandatory training that can be an imposition to the business. Right, and that's, that's so key because in, in what I do with a lot of the organizations, I work with the senior HR uh, uh, teams and getting them to bring in their trainings, but we also talk about how does that align, how does it help the, T, the HR group help the organization attain all of its goals in every aspect of the business, yeah. not just in the hiring and the firing and the parties and everything else. And that's yeah. so critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the pandemic, and we're still dealing with everything there. So the question mm -hmm. is, how has the pandemic changed things for human resources? And then, of course, how has it changed things for leaders trying to lead remotely today? Yeah. So, of course, this pandemic was unprecedented. It was unexpected. And I would think a lot of people would say it was also unwelcome. But it was also fast, furious, and fatal, right? It's almost 150,000 people have died from it. So this thing caught us off guard. Those companies that were easily able to make a shift and a change were those companies who were already open to change, right? Those companies that were not, were not so risk averse, those companies that had a, a flexible model. I've been talking to companies for years about being more nimble, being more agile, being more flexible. As the world is changing, you got to consider that even through technology, right? Technology continues to force us to have to do things differently and work differently. But this caught many HR professionals and leaders, it caught all of us off guard and HR had to quickly shift to, for example, thinking about now medical benefits. If, person, if people are identified as having uh, COVID-19, let's make sure we've got paid time off. How do we ensure that we're taking care of them? You had to immediately flip to now everybody's got to work remotely, especially for states that totally shut down, but also those, um, those areas that were hot spots and it was just dangerous to go to work. And so you had to pivot there. And then you had to look at the those um, employees who were essential workers, how do you make sure you're taking care of them? So it was a lot of care and feeding. It was making sure that the policies were flexible enough, that benefits were in place, and then making sure that people could still get work done, even if they were used to working in the office and not from home. How do we make sure we're taking care of each other? What are the ways that we communicate? Zoom blew up, right? Because a lot of companies were not all working so remotely that they had a platform in which they could convene and communicate and get information out there. And so it really shifted a lot. And HR played a real important role in that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
pivoting there is absolutely key. My question there is, have you noticed any particular uh, type of a company or an industry um, or even size of company that has been either able to pivot better or not pivot as well? Yeah, I'll give a couple of examples. One is, um, you know, Target really did a great job of pivoting quickly. Um, not only did they make sure that their their staff were all, um, you know, had the, the essential um, PPE that they needed to get work done to be able to service, but remember, they were also an essential organization that was helping others to get the kind of supplies that they were needing. Remember, we were having a short supply of toilet paper and, and wipes, and they were making sure, too, that they were able to get those things done. But the other thing that they did was they increased hourly salaries because people were working very, very long hours to try to accommodate the long lines of customers who were trying to get some of the bare necessities to have to be home. So that part of it, I love. They continue to um, increase their communication. And so I, and I know all of this because a good friend of mine was the chief diversity officer there uh, Caroline Wanga, and we just stayed in touch. A lot of us as HR officers and diversity officers were all sharing and exchanging information of who was doing this well and what were some of the things that people could do. They were over communicating, which was very important. They were taking care of their workers so that their workers could take care of the customers. They extended their hours, but they made sure that they paid for the hourly rates of employees and they hired more people so that they could in this pandemic help us all to get through it. That's a great example of it. And a great key point you brought up was the HR professionals, as you're talking about, all communicated, even yeah. over communicated. Um, I'm assuming they aren't just all within the target environment. I'm sure that they, they reached out to other HR professionals from other yes. companies and organizations. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing a collaborative effort that I think has been unprecedented probably since World War II. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And it was those companies that, like I said, had already had a pretty good culture where people felt like they were able to get work done when they needed to get work done. They felt like the benefits were all intact. They felt like communication was there and the trust was there. And that's really important because too many companies were falling short of not even communicating enough with their employees to just do something as basic as check in with people, see how they're doing. Are you okay, right? What do you need? How can I support you? Not constantly calling to say, okay, are you gonna get this project in? Are you gonna get this deadline met? Are you gonna make sure you touch bases with this client? But let's just touch bases with each other. During that pandemic, one of the number one key skills that leaders needed to demonstrate was empathy. Yes. Empathy, yes. care and feeding, touching bases with your people. This is the kind of culture that really showed up well through this. And what Maya Angelou has always said was people will remember not necessarily how much you knew, but how much you cared and how you made them feel. And that's how I think companies differentiated themselves through this pandemic. And that's that's so powerful because there's so much that goes on. Now, one of the places that I've uh, done some research in, I'm finding that people are actually saying they are more productive now mm -hmm. working from home yeah. than they actually were in the office because of all the distractions in the office. What are you finding? I find a mixed bag, but for the most part, that's not new. I have been talking with clients for years, at least mm -hmm. the last seven years or so, 
to say to them, been trying to convince them how important it is to have a more flexible workplace arrangement because it was research that I had done when I was working at Sherm as their global head of DNI. We did a lot of studies and we talked to DNI, employees, by the way, we talked to workers. Yeah. I'm sorry, DNI, just explain that for everybody. Diversity and inclusion. I'm okay. sorry. Just so yeah. listeners pick up on that. Okay. Not a problem. Yes. And everybody should now know what a, a chief diversity and inclusion officer is now. We'll get to that part too, given the current climate that we're in. But having been a global head of diversity and inclusion, we did a lot of studies and we always studied what was, you know, uh, key factors for talent acquisition, key factors for talent engagement and key factors for talent retention. And the number one thing always came up was people wanted flexibility. I can't tell you, Greg, the number of companies that I would talk to, the number of leaders that I was trying to coach through this thing to say, you need to be more flexible. You got to allow your workers to have a level of autonomy and you got to trust that they'll get the work done because visibility does not equal value. Just because I see you at work every day does not mean you're adding a lot of value, mm -hmm. nor does it mean that because I don't see you and you're working remotely that you're not productive. But when this pandemic hit, many, many, many of those clients that were resistant to this, to, to working remotely and flexibly, they had to immediately make a shift. And you're right. We started to hear now how much more people were very productive. They were able to get started to work sooner. They weren't in traffic lines. They weren't having to stop and get coffee and donuts. They weren't having to drop kids off at daycare. So the flip side of that too, just some of the concerns that I have had, um, I've heard is that some of those who are, yes, they're productive and at home, but they're also at home with the kids. They're also having to be teacher and tutor. They're also having to deal with the dog, the cat, the parrot, and the turtle, right? So, I, you know, you've got to be more flexible and open to that, but not everyone sees it as most productive because there's a lot of distractions too. Right. And Google for years have even said, um, and a lot of other organizations as well, have said, we really don't care when you work. Yes. We just care that you get your productivity done. And I don't know about your business. I have worked with clients before. They say they just don't trust the workers. Uh, I said, well, if you've got an employee who is a good worker, they'll be a great teleworker. Yeah. If I agree. If you a bad worker at work, they're probably not going to be a great teleworker either. I agree. And when you hear a lot of that kind of resistance is I don't trust the worker. Why? I mean, let's, let's go back a little bit further. If you're making great hires, you're mm -hmm. hiring people based on their skills, their experience, they're qualified, you made a good hire, at what point did you not be, were, were you not able to trust them anymore? Exactly. And is that a product of the culture and the work environment itself? And what support or accountability as a leader have you been, you know, holding this person to? So it's a both end. I wouldn't just say it's all on the worker. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I can't remember who said the quote right now, but there was a quote that said, if there is a problem with an employee's performance, it is not on the problem of the employee at the interview. It is on the person who did the hiring. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. People don't leave bad jobs. They leave bad leaders and they leave toxic cultures. Yes. And I find that more often than not, when you make a really good hire, a person becomes disengaged, disconnected and disenfranchised because of the culture of the workplace and because of the leader and how they, they treat the people. And so if you are a great leader, and we all know I've worked for wonderful, great, great leaders, but I've also worked for some terrible toxic leaders as well. And I can tell you that it, it zaps your energy, it brings down your level of productivity, 
and it just causes a greater level of stress, which impacts productivity and engagement. And that's, that's absolutely key. So let's take a little shift here. Let's look at culture because you've mentioned it a couple of times. Yep. And I'm, I'm huge on understanding culture. We had a guest on a few weeks ago, CEO of an IT company, and he has his pillars that he focuses in on. And he has actually terminated people who have violated those pillars that he focuses on from his culture. Uh -huh. um, for the most part, that's only happened, I think, twice in 20 years of running the business. Uh -huh. But it, it has happened. So how is culture shifting now? Uh, through the pandemic and all the inclusion uh, and things that we've got to be focusing in on. What are you seeing there? So that's a little bit of a loaded question because I think you're talking about one pandemic when you know there's three going on at the same time. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so there's the pandemic of COVID-19. And so cultures have had to be flexible. That's, you know, we have a flexible mm -hmm. culture. You also have to have a learning culture and you have to have an empathetic culture of leaders and also to a culture where people are trusting and they're accommodating and supportive. So this is the time now more than ever before during this pandemic of this health crisis that we needed to be really understanding. I mean, you're looking now in people's houses, you get to see pictures on the wall, you get to see kids running through the, through the, through the yard, through the, excuse me, through the house. And you also get to see personal spaces that people may not have been comfortable prior to that allowing you in. You get to see who they're living with, how they're living, right? Because you see sometimes who they might be talking to or whatever. You see whether or not they live in an apartment or you see what the, you know, what the environment looks like. And those are biases that could really affect how we see each other. So we've had to even be a lot more accommodating and less judgmental about that. That's one part of it. Then you've got this other pandemic called racism that as a result of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, and all of the, the yes. ones that came before them and the ones that will come after them, is that we've got this national outcry for greater equity and inclusion. And so cultures have had to really rethink and look at themselves as a part of all of this, you know, pivoting in the pandemic, look at themselves and say, do we have a problem? Do we have systemic and institutional and structural racism? Do we have an issue with inequities? Do we have an opportunity to become more of a culture of belonging and a culture of inclusion and a culture of high performance where all talent can thrive and not just a few? They're looking at the tops of their organizations now and they're having a question around why is everybody at the top look alike and no one looks like me, right? Me, mm -hmm. African-American or person of color or even women, right? So yeah. I am loving the opportunity now to work with these clients and to help them do audits, help them to do diversity, equity, and inclusion strategic planning, help them to do listening sessions. We've gotten, we've got about 40 uh, that we be either be the between we've done already and that we're scheduled to do. So I'm seeing cultures now saying, this is not just a moment. This is a movement. We want to be a part of it. We've not been comfortable talking about racism in the past. It's always been taboo. Don't talk about it. But we're going to lean into it now. So I'm seeing cultures that now are creating safe to speak um, areas where people can talk about it, their experiences, and they're saying, what can we do to help and support? Absolutely. And the cultures within the organization, some of those have been in place for over a hundred years. Yes. So are you seeing the, the, I guess the old standby companies, the larger companies have been around for a long time. Are they struggling more or are they grasping it? Or are the younger companies more the IT companies that have a younger um, 
the workforce, are they more adaptable? Are they more flexible? What are you noticing? I'm noticing, uh, first of all, we have been slammed and overwhelmed with clients, new clients and existing clients. And they've, they've come from small companies, mom and pop shops. We're dealing with uh, municipalities, state and local governments. We're dealing with Fortune 50, Fortune 10 companies. And um, some of them, like you said, have been around for 100, 200 years, and they've been on this DNI diversity and inclusion journey for a long time, but not to a very progressive extent, right? So they've been sort of doing incremental things here to take a step back, take a step forward, take a side step, come back into it. So now what I'm saying, and there are some companies that have been on the journey for a long time, and they were easily able to say, let's have this conversation, let's do this. There are so many more though, Greg, that are coming to us now saying, we don't have anyone that's focused on this. We've not done any of this before. We really do have a problem and we really do now want to address it. So I'm really thrilled to see some of that. Um, those who have not had any focus on diversity, equity and inclusion in the past are at least starting with, let's listen to our staff. Let's hear how they're feeling. Let's hear their pain. Let's hear their trauma or let's hear how it's affecting them at work and what are some things we can do. So those listening sessions also become a voice of the employee and it becomes great data points for them to hear just where they are and where they can be and where they what they should be doing. That's so, it's so good to hear that companies are starting to pick that up because yeah. I'm starting to see some of that in different organizations and others sometimes are like, yeah, we've been there for a while. So it's, it's good to hear they have, but I'm still wondering how things are starting to go. Mm -hmm. You know, they've and, been there for a while though, Greg, many of them, here's their while. So they've been out there doing it and they have done training and they have done some recruiting, mm -hmm. but they've recruited a lot of diverse talent, visibly diverse talent. And then I find that many of them are at the mid level and below. So they're not at the top. So there's mm -hmm. some opportunities to do more around developing that high performing talent and ensure that you create a pipeline for them to be able to grow up the organization. I look at this too, when you look at the fortune 500 companies out of 500 of them, guess what? Only 37 are headed up by women. And guess what? Only four of them are headed up by an African American. And guess what? Those four are men, not one African American female. And we only have a few, maybe three people of color that are non-black, right? Non-African Americans. Right. So we still have a way, a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. So a that's why way. I say they've been on it a long time, mm -hmm. but not necessarily making the real, I think, uh, quantum leap, um, progressive uh, shifts that they really need to make. Now they're open to doing that. And I think some of that is a generational change and an uprising. Yes. I think yes. a lot of it's coming from that with the generations changing. And that's, we're still probably, I hate to say it, we're still probably another 10 to 15 years before we start to see that groundswell really start to pick up. I think so too, Greg. And here was the other thing that's been very pleasantly surprising to me is this whole shift and everything that's happening has really been pushed not only from, you know, when we're talking about racism and some of the other issues, it's not just about racism because it's really looking at how do we, for the sake of humanity, ensure that all people are created equal and that they're treated fairly and equitably. But I have loved seeing our young people. I love seeing our millennials really push the envelope. As a matter of fact, we know through census data that this year, 2020, was the year that millennials took about 50% of the workforce now. 
right? The baby boomers yeah. and the millennials are now the two largest segments of our working population. But now millennials are the largest because most of the baby boomers are going to be retiring. Yeah. And in 10 years from now, that number jumps to 75%. So that's the groundswell. That's going to be right. the shift because the young people are saying, wait a minute, this is how we live. This is how we treat people. This is what our companies look like. We want better. We want different. And we're going to, we're going to demand it. Yeah. And that's going to start to go because you're, you're right. More baby boomers are going to retire. Yeah. Generation X, which is the smallest, uh, yeah, population. that's me. That's my generation. Okay, that was the smallest generation uh, in the workforce in, in history. Yeah, we had the baby boomers and we had Gen Xers who that's right, which is really small. Then I always separate Gen Y and millennials a little bit. But as they've all been lumped together, it starts to go through. And there's so many ways to look at that. What you, I you, ask um, you, oh, you're talking about the millennials and the Gen Z that just came in, right? Gen well, Z. I'm looking at Gen Y, two years ago. millennial and Gen Z, all three are separates. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. So yep. And you're all here together. Uh, oh yeah. And we're all in the same workforce. I mean, then you got to tag in. There are still some uh, traditionalists that are out there in the workforce. Absolutely. That you would know? be my mom and dad. They're still working. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, not now since this pandemic, but right in March, you know, they were still working. Right. Mm -hmm. right. I had a gentleman in a program a few years ago. Uh, he had done 30 years in, or excuse me, 25 years in the Air Force, then went into the uh, federal government sector. He was 84 years old, still working five days a week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. We'll, we see more and more of that because now, you know, 25, 30 years later, that's another shift and change is that people are living a lot longer. There is and a lot more advancement in medicine. Mm -hmm. Would you say, Greg? And quality of life is better so yes. they can work longer. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. so that's, we, we see, that's why now this is the first time ever we've got so many generations, five or six of them working alongside of each other because right. we're able to live longer, work longer. And like you said, have a better quality of life. So let's look at that from the generational points and leadership today. When we're looking at leaders, what do they need to do differently? We talked about empathy already. So that's mm -hmm. a key factor. Yeah. Uh, we talk about trust and trust is the core foundation for just about anything that we try to do. And of course, I always talk about vulnerability trust in addition to predictive trust. But beyond that, what, what should leaders be doing today to make this shift both from the cultural side as well as the pandemic side of uh, the health issues, the remote working? What are things that leaders should be doing? Yeah. Well, we did hit on empathy and I, I keep saying that one of the most important skills and qualities that we needed last year, the year before, and we now really, really need it is emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Because this is a time too when people are at their highest levels of stress, right? There's a lot of death and grieving. Death in a very different way, Greg, that we've never seen it before because we've never been in a situation where we have not been able to say goodbye to our loved ones and to have them buried, you know, in a reasonable way where we can see them. Who in the world would have ever thought that we would have to be saying goodbye to someone on the phone, on a walkie-talkie, or through a glass because you can't go see them? So all of these things are requiring leaders to truly have to demonstrate a level of emotional intelligence where we understand that people are hurting, they're traumatized, they're in pain, they're feeling overwhelmed and stressed. And so in order to be able to get the best work out of them, you're going to have to be able to provide the best level of care and feeding and be able to gauge and, and, and see them 
um, as they are, right? Not necessarily how you think they should be, but look for the signs, be more observant. So I think that's important. I think the other piece of it is, is that there has to be a level of courage right now, especially as we talk about how now we're shifting our cultures. Culture shifts require that you gotta have a mentality and an appetite for change. That requires courage. Courage to be able to speak up, courage to be able to hold people accountable, courage to be willing to have these kinds of tough conversations that we're having now with people, courage to be willing to say, you know what, as we shift and change, I am expecting this from you and I am willing to give you, you know, the support that you need. So I think those are important ones. I think inclusive and inclusiveness, as a leader, you've got to be highly inclusive and you've got to, again, suspend judgment. You've got to manage your biases and you've got to be a much more uh, culturally competent and sensitive as we talk about inclusion. And you can't overlook people. This isn't the time now where you want to keep going to your favorite people. This isn't a time now where you want to undervalue and trivialize people, being sensitive to you know, the things that we're all dealing with. So those are very important. And then a level of flexibility. Leaders have got to continue to realize that it's not a one size fits all in leadership. You have people who have different experiences, backgrounds, needs, and they have different life situations. And so we need leaders who are willing and able to make those kinds of adjustments, to be flexible, to be accommodating, and to know how to provide the level of support. So it's not, I don't need the same thing that you need and you don't need the same thing I need. As a leader, you need to check in with me and manage and direct and lead me in a way that helps me bring out the, you know, helps you to bring out the best in me. So those are some of the really key things. And it's interesting because, you know, 20 years ago, the Myers-Briggs and the DISC profiles and things like that were a part of it. Yeah. I think they've now become a very integral part of recognizing that so that we now know how to adapt our style because everybody is different. Absolutely. And it's not just putting somebody into a pigeonhole box anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's being able to grasp that. Yeah. But I want to go down a different path here for a second. Whenever we have any kind of a disaster such as the COVID-19 pandemic and everything. And we've even seen this on the news where there's companies coming out there. And I saw a story, I don't know, a number of weeks ago where somebody went out there and set up and said for $50, they'll do the COVID test. Their whole testing thing was a scam. Yeah. Okay? yeah. And it's sad that we have people doing that. Um, my question is, are we seeing workers or managers anywhere across the board. I'm not, I'm not talking about from a senior level. I'm just talking about in general. Are we seeing workers trying to take advantage of things? Um, having been in HR as long as I have, there's always some. <laughs> there will always be some that will take advantage of, for example, um, if you're working from home more and more, especially whenever companies were trying to really pivot and make the shifts and trying to get everybody up and running and, and, and needing help, you know, I'm sure, and I've heard a lot of complaints of, you know, people just weren't available. People, um, you know, they were at home, but um, they weren't being productive and yet they were being paid not to be productive. So I think you will have those. You still have those scams of people. Like here was a big one. I'm in this HR group. And whenever you had the stimulus package come out, which was for a lot of people who were unemployed, guess what we saw? We saw a number of employees who had quit the company a year or two years earlier, who applied for unemployment and said that they had lost their job during the pandemic. 
So it was the most interesting thing that so many HR people were saying, are they crazy? Do they think that I'm not going to respond to this unemployment application and tell them that this person doesn't work it? And I think they just thought that because everything was happening so fast that they weren't going to check, they weren't going to be held accountable, but they will get some free money. So those are examples that, yes, it still happens. But I would say that's let's assume, because I'm one that always likes to look at things you know, from a positive intent, right. let's assume that those are the minorities and not the majorities of people who do that. And it always is. I think, I think we're absolutely right. Sometimes those little situations get blown way out of proportion. Mm-hmm. It's just right. Yeah, I mean, look at the number of companies. Now, again, part of it was the fact that there wasn't a lot of clarity in how do you get, you know, the payroll protection program. But look at the number of companies who got it, who really didn't need it. And then the, the small business owners who really, really needed it, who couldn't get it. So right. those are the kinds of things. And then you saw some shame and blame going on and several of them had to give it back. And I know that yes. there's at some point going to be some more that are going to have to give it back to. But right. Greg, we have those people in our society all the time who sit around, try to take your identity, try to scam you out of your money and won't be honest. We have those that work with us too. From a teaming perspective, with everybody working remotely today, what are things that you've seen other organizations start to do to bring people together to get work done? Because you can't do your traditional things anymore. There's, right. there's not the talking over the coffee co- uh, water cooler and things like that. What are, you, what are you seeing companies do and how are they reinventing that collaborative effort? Yeah. So we know that Zoom blew up, right? A lot of people were working through Zoom, but at the same time, people were getting Zoomed out. So I've seen too some companies who are really just said, you know what, let's just pick the phone up and I'm just going to do some calls and just check in with people and do something different, right? Mm-hmm. So I know too many of us who were now stuck at home uh, and not having to travel as much and not having to go to work every day, I was able to reconnect with so many more people than I was when we were in the hustle and the bustle. So one of the things I think that was good that came out of the pandemic was that we really got a chance to sit back, reflect, and hopefully re-engage with each other on a very personal level, but on a very genuine level, right? So I think that was important. Other companies and what I've seen them do have been really nice happy hours where they've gotten together. Yeah, and it was via Zoom or some of the others, but it wasn't about work. It was, let's just bring our favorite glass of wine and let's just have a downtime and let's just talk about what we're doing and what's going on and how we are you know, reflecting. What's the last movie you saw that was really good? So I think that's been helpful. The other thing I've seen is just sometimes they just say, let's have a virtual coffee, right? Yep. Or, you know, I love the, um, you know, let's just get a chance to come together at least once a week or once a month that they can do that. And we'll socially distance, but they have at least places in their companies where they can have some come, take a chance, uh, excuse me, take time, take turns, and they will not have everybody come at the same time, but they've been breaking it off in weeks. People can be distant, uh, socially distanced, and that has been helpful for them at least to come together and see each other. And then one thing I really love that um, a company was telling me that they did not too long ago was a care package was delivered to the houses of every employee just to say thank you for, you know, for doing what you're doing and for being patient with us. We appreciate you. Some of those little small things like that matter. Oh, absolutely. The, yeah. the, just recognition and small things yes. in general 
are great ways to do it. I mean, mm -hmm. I've talked for years about if you really motivate somebody, a simple post-it note put on the side of somebody's computer while they're at lunch. Hey, I really appreciate the extra effort yeah. you've been putting in. Thank you. That's right. It's the little things that really typically mean a lot. And mm -hmm. that goes into the neurosciences of everything about how the that's brain right. works. And that's just a fascinating aspect. Yeah, that's the whole sense of belonging, too, that we're talking mm -hmm. about. Going back to culture, it is how do you make people feel? And when we're going through something as terrible as this and as unprecedented as this, people will not forget how you made them feel through this process. And to send a little small care package or just make a phone call and say, I was just thinking about you. I didn't want to know about your project. I want to get an update on your clients. Just want to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. How can I support you? What else mm -hmm. do you need? That goes a long way. Yeah, I, I just, I'm going to give a shout out here to uh, a company called Chewy.com. Chewy, sure. yeah. I love my Chewy. I was sitting here one day and I was, the pandemic was in and I was waiting on my dog food to come and I actually called them and says, I'm okay with it being late. I can go out to the store and buy some, but I'm just curious if you know what is happening. And while I'm talking to them on the phone, my dog starts to bark pretty crazily. I go upstairs <laughs> and there's a FedEx package. I opened up the FedEx package and inside was a uh, uh, acrylic painting of my dog on canvas Wow. Six by six that yeah. they sent and says, hey, thank you for everything. And they took uh, the picture from the uh, the site that I put uh, on their website that I posted. That's awesome. And so yeah, it's those little like things that, like that. And if leaders can really learn that it's really not about the big, big ideas, it's not about the big, big projects. It's just about the big heart that you extend to people and show them that they are valued, that they are yeah. appreciated, and that you recognize what they're doing. That goes a long way, even more so than a pay raise. Oh, yes. So that goes back to Maslow's, you know, theory, you know, you got to have yes. a safe place at first. And you get up there, you got to have that sense of belonging. And that's yes. just that's key. Yes. So let's, let's talk about culture from the aspect of the culture that we've got today. And understanding how can we get this high performance culture? What do we need to do to keep us engaged. A lot of people are saying their people are more engaged now during the pandemic than they were even before the pandemic. But what do we need to do to keep it a, a culture of engaged employees? Couple of things. Two things, as you heard me say earlier, that really impact employee engagement. And that is my boss, my direct supervisor and the leaders, as well as the culture. So we got to start with those two things. Got to make sure that leaders have the right skill sets and the right training and development that will help them to be great leaders. Too many times, Greg, we've seen, and I, you know, having um, headed up recruiting for 10 years, I've seen too many times where people were hired because somebody recommended them and that's fine, but let them be, at least be qualified to lead people, right? Just because you got a great, great big project and you got wonderful results and you knocked it out of the park, a project is not a person and you don't manage people, you lead people. So you've got to make sure we focus We focus on building the leadership skills and the kind of leaders that were 20 years ago are not going to be the kind of leaders that will be effective today. No. You've got to understand all of the diversity, the multiculturalism, the multi-ethnic, the multi-generational workforce. They're coming from different places with different backgrounds and experiences and as leaders, we have to be able to work effectively across differences. So that's going to be very effective. The other thing too is with your culture, you got to have values, values that really do speak to 
how important you treat people, how important you make them feel, how do you set them up for success? And oh, by the way, do you then live those values every day? So that's yeah. an important part of it. The other piece of it too, because you know, culture is not always something you see, it's something you experience. Yeah. You know it when you see it, right? I can see some artifacts of culture. I can walk into a university and see all of the Hall of uh, Famers with the previous presidents and provosts. Yeah, that's a part of your legacy. That's a part of your culture. But when I walk into your organization from the very front desk person, how am I treated, right? That's an experience that I may have. When I call your organization, do I get good customer service? Is it accurate information that's shared? Is it timely that's, uh, that's provided? That's culture. And it's about how do you also allow employees to feel that same way? So you got to change policies. You got to change your procedures. You got to change your practices. And then I always say too, if you've got people inside of your organization that doesn't treat people with respect and doesn't treat people with dignity, then when you can't change the people, change the people. You get that when you can't I change. I got it. I want you. I want you to you gotta change back. the people. And I want you to say that again. I got it. It makes <laughs> sense. So step back and say that a little slower for everybody. When you can't change the people, meaning if you've got leaders that are continually being resistant, leaders that won't treat people with respect, leaders that are bad apples, bad seeds, and they give people a real bad experience. I'm hearing so many people now because leaders are under stress, just like the workers are but you can't take it out on the workers. You can't cuss them out. You can't call them out of their name. You can't make them feel like two cents, right? And I'm seeing too many leaders are doing that because they're under stress thinking that the company might close. We won't have enough money. We won't meet budget. I might be next. And so they're putting all this pressure on people and making them feel really, really small. When you can't change leaders like that, you need to change those leaders. You won't right. be able to change their mindset, their attitude and their behaviors. You need to help them um, as I say, discover a new destiny, release them to their destiny to go find something else. But you got to get rid of them out of your organization. I used to hear Herb Kelleher used to say this a lot when he was CEO of, um, of Southwest Airlines is he and he taught me this 15, 20 years ago. Sometimes you have to fire to inspire. And that means get rid of some of the people who are not helping your organization become better, not become more competitive and not become more inclusive and high performing. They're the ones that are bringing your organization down. And there's some bad leaders that have been in positions too long. Right. So let's end on this. When you can't change the people, you need change to change the people. The people. Yeah. yeah. And that's powerful. Yeah. Dr. Shirley Davis, it's been a privilege to have you here on the Teamwork Advantage podcast. I uh, wish you well. My philosophy is very simple. I tell everybody, do not have a good day. Because when you're having a good day, you're only being average. Right. So be sure to make it a great day, an awesome day, a terrific day. But don't have a good day. <laughs> I love sure it. I love it. Again I love next it. week for another great guest. We'll talk about that and we'll see how we can help teamwork, leadership, and culture. What I call Absolutely. The new thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure TLC. being on here. Right. Shirley, thank you. The Business TLC, Teamwork, Leadership, and Culture. Yes. Thanks very much, and have a great day. Awesome. You've been listening to the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit TeamsRock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. 
Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the teamwork advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.